It's the mic test, it's the mic test, making sure the audio quality doesn't suck. Well, hopefully it doesn't suck. The best part of doing a podcast is the fact that I can open the show however I want. Like, I just opened it with a mic test. And what, what are you going to do? You, you going to yell at me online? At Red Leg Pod on Twitter, go for it. Let's, let's get into a flame war about how I open my show with a mic test. I suppose that's better than opening or just recording shitty great audio, but, you know, I'm learning. I'm moving forward. Big plus, I think I figured out how to record phone calls, so I've got hopefully a couple people on lock to come and discuss some stuff with me in our last couple regular episodes of season one. So let's get started. Happy 2022. I hope you all caught our last episode where we talked about how the pandemic is going off the rails and everybody wants to pretend like it's over, including our intrepid leadership team in Washington. We're all pretty fucked there. They're pretty much just putting us out on the chopping block as we have more new cases and more hospitals overfilled with COVID patients. But, you know, now we're not trying to make Trump look bad. So we're going to pretend like everything is fine. And I'm still waiting on my $2,000. Anyway, welcome to Red Leg Revolution, a show about community. My name is C-Dubs, and today we're going to talk a bit about credit in America. We're going to do this for a few reasons. First, I'm trying an episode a week, and between all of life, the holidays, replacing all my stuff after it got stolen, so on and so forth, it's been really hard to get guests scheduled. And I had a couple guests scheduled to try and get the regular season episodes done today. But, like I said, everybody's got the fucking Rona because nobody cares that there's a pandemic going on because Team Blue isn't actively trying to make Team Red look bad because they control power. So because everybody has the Rona, I am hiding in my house doing this episode by myself as I wait for some people to give me a call. So that's why we're here. Also, so I'm sure if y'all are regular listeners, you know, all my stuff got stolen about a month ago. There is still a GoFundMe up. GoFundMe Chuck-Got-Robbed. It's still going if y'all want to help me resupply my tools. But I bring it up mainly because obviously they took my wallet So I had to cancel all my cards, I had to get new cards, and that really got me reflecting on when I got credit cards in the first place. So it really got me on it. Also, uh, I've been reading David Graeber's Debt the First 5,000 Years, which has got me thinking a lot about the relationship between money, capital, credit, and debt. And finally, because in 2018, I wrote an opinion piece about credit that will make up the bulk of this episode because I've been writing regular season scripts and not specials. So that's why we're going to talk about credit. I also think that it's totally a, a worthy topic at the moment, given the fact that the Biden administration started up student loan debt again, and then we cyber bullied him into putting another extension 
on the non-payment dealio. So that was the one good thing the Biden administration did. But the important thing to remember there is they were totally ready to start taking all our money again. And I think they very heavily understood that that would have been the the flame to the gunpowder and we would have started literally eating the rich. And like I said in my last episode, I don't think postponing it to May is going to help the way things are going. Things are going to be even worse than May or in May. And, but we'll see. But obviously student debt is a large portion of our credit issues along with, you know, household debt and mortgage debt, all things that the government could step in and help control, but won't because they're two wings of the same bird. When everybody works for the same capitalists, nobody really cares about you. So, first off, I highly recommend reading David Graeber's Debt the First 5,000 Years. He does a great job of laying his argument out through the use of economics, sociology, anthropology, and history readable, it's well-cited, and David Graeber has an accessible writing style. I, I found it accessible, at least. It's not dry, it's not boring, it's got a nice little narrative flow to it, and for a book about economics, that's important for me to actually retain what's going on. Check it out. It is at your local library, and if ebooks are your thing, you can download a free copy at Libcom. That's The First 5,000 Years by David Graeber. Okay, so when I was first joining the United Brotherhood of Carpenters and Joiners, I was an apprentice, and they make all apprentices take an orientation class. It also includes your OSHA 30 certification. I was lucky enough to be in the launch class that added a financial management class to that curriculum. It was the very first one that they had done in the Kansas City area, and it's, it was basically just to teach a lot of these apprentices who were, you know, 18, 19 years old, kind of a heads up on how to manage their money. The same type of stuff that you get from any online financial tip situation, you know, where they're basically like, hey, save 10% of your paycheck, yada, yada. Now, this is really important for construction workers because generally speaking you only work six months out of the year and unemployment only goes so far so it's commendable that they would offer this class and everything right so I kind of got into it with the representative from a credit union that they brought I don't know if got into it uh, is the right terminology but we definitely had a discussion about the nature of credit in America. So when I got home that day, I was still pretty fired up, and I took to social media to discuss our credit system. In the midst of writing a long-as-fuck post, I realized I was writing an essay and edited it to become one. So, y'all want to hear it? <laughs> Good, because that's what half this episode is so you know if you don't want to hear it then I don't know stop listening now and come back when we're back to doing fun stuff I I don't know 
but you know you want to hear it. Y'all are here because you've read some of my writing and know that I generally know what the hell I'm doing. So we're going to take us a quick break and do some capitalism that isn't credit and help out our homies with the organizations that I work with. And when we get back, we will get on this speech entitled On Credit. We will be right back. But first, ads? Deep in the swamps of Florida. Honeys, that a new plant? He dwells, waiting. Where did those seeds come from, honey? Silently. Oh my god, what is that? Sending seeds and stickers across the country Ah! and spreading solidarity. Have you lost your mind, honey? We can't move to a sustainable commune in upstate New York. What's wrong with you lately? There's no stopping him. The mighty skunk ape is on Facebook and he's on a mission. Anarchy! No! Coming to a post office box near you, the Skunk Ape Liberation Union. And we are back. So let's go ahead and get right into it. I'm going to read this like it was intended to be heard. When I started turning it into a speech, I started kind of envisioning... You know, an old-school IWW organizer on a overturned crate on a street corner in, like, 1915, which was a very big thing. Uh, we'll probably do an episode in the future about actual free speech fights, not the bullshit that, like, the right's doing now where they say that everything from, you know, CRT or not being able to use ethnic slurs is violating their free speech. That's bullshit. I have very strong feelings on free speech, but back in the 1910s, uh, IWW members were literally being beaten up, disappeared, jailed for trying to unionize people, and one of their big tactics to stop the IWW from unionizing was to say that their speech was seditious and would lock them up. So the soapbox model like, hits really dear to my heart, you know? So anyway, let's get into this. Here's my old-timey organizer voice. On credit. Brothers, sisters, and everyone in between. Today in my apprentice carpentry class, they offered a finance course to assist new apprentices with managing their finances. While the course was helpful, informative, well-intended, and well-implemented, it also offered me a view and an opportunity to expound upon said view on the American credit system in a public forum. At one point, the instructor, a representative of a credit union, asked what we thought about credit. Crickets chirped. She extolled. Good or bad, what are your thoughts? I raised my hand and asked the very polite woman if she truly wanted my views, and warned her that she would get a passionate response if she truly desired it. With a small chuckle, she replied that she would be happy to have even one response at that point, so I obliged her. I told her what I thought of our credit system. 
The American credit system is a screw job, I loudly began. What followed shall contain many of the same talking points that I will address here. Firstly, you cannot improve your credit if you did not have it to begin with. Is this possible with anything? To get it, you must already have it in some form or another. My parents had horrible credit and, as such, did not allow me to build my credit as an authorized user on their accounts, or allowing them to assist with initial deposits, or utilizing them as co-signers. When I was 18, the only credit that I could find was for student loans. No credit card would even give me the time of day without a security deposit of $1,000. Given this was a twelfth of my yearly income despite working full-time, there was no way I could possibly amass that much money at any given point, especially as an 18-year-old. Even cards with low credit limits declined me. One representative told me that speaking of creditworthiness, I was a ghost. I existed in the credit system as an entity, yet since I had no credit, I could not qualify for credit. Since everyone told me of outrageous interest fees, predatory lending practices, and the ease of falling behind when using means of credit, I deferred pursuing a card to my own detriment, born of ignorance. I was taught that if you couldn't afford something, you did not buy it. I was taught the means of credit were simply a means of ensnaring one in the debt trap. I was taught that it was better to owe no debt as a general rule. These were very practical lessons that were, unfortunately, not made for such an impure world. As such, I did not apply for a loan until I brought my first vehicle with my ex-wife. The only way we were able to qualify for said loan was due to her mother co-signing. To my own privilege, I had married into an upper-class middle fam an upper-middle-class family, and that alone provived, provided a level of privilege that I had previously only dreamed about. The loan was paid in full and on time, yet that counts lit for little in the great scheme of things. At that point, I had barely any hits to my credit since I operated on a strictly cash basis. My second car loan, obtained post-divorce, which had a whopping 17% interest rate, was provided through a fly-by-night auto financing company. In order to build my creditworthiness, I had to pay excessive interest, which in turn hurt my other finances and my ability to further build my credit, savings, or investment in myself. That $3,500 car cost me almost $5,000 just to satisfy the interest, but, given my options available, it was the best one. The highest rate that I had while shopping for that car, quoted to me, was 25%. Allow me a brief respite to discuss the morality of interest. First off, it is usury, plain and simple. For a self-professed Christian nation, we are incredibly adept at turning a blind eye to this. To charge more than a point or two of interest is a morally vile thing, which we understood at points in the past. Now we celebrate it under the guise of capitalism. I am not a biblical man, but Exodus specifically forbids it, as well as the book of Leviticus. Exodus 20, 24. Exodus 22, 24. Quote, If thou lend money to any of my people, even to the poor with thee, thou shalt not be to him as a creditor, neither shall ye lay upon him interest. Le Leviticus 25.36 simply states, Take thou no interest of him or increase, but fear thy God, that thy brother may live with thee. The other two Abrahamic religions, Judaism and Islam, also have clear thoughts on usury as a sin. To take advantage of those already destitute is an abomination due to any rational and moral person. 
These religions felt this way because they understood that we should not profit on the back of our fellow man. To make money off of allowing people access to mobility, housing, education, and other necessities is damaging to a society as a whole. It is the antithesis of community. It's putting oneself above all others. Despite this, we as a country have embraced the concept of interest as not only necessary but morally acceptable, morally agreeable, and we cannot abide such abomination. As you cannot wring blood from a stone, you cannot find more money when there is none. The financial perils of the proletariat in the 21st century America concerning generating income are too numerous to address here. They all play their, their role in retaining those in lower classes from upward mobility. Instead of offering payments on loans which could be affordable, thus making the financiers some money while improving the lot of the borrower, we deliberately charge those who cannot afford it the most. In turn, they often default due to these high interest rates and fall deeper into the self-perpetuating cycle of debt. Mechanisms built into contracts for necessities often disallow events which would, theoretically, improve one's credit. Early payoff penalties, automatic defaults, and variable interest loans are excellent examples of mechanisms built to keep the poor in their economic place. But back to my experience. I paid off two cars, which amounted to, no to more than I've ever owed on a single debt. This did not matter. The loans I paid off totaled over $20,000 when my debts were not even $10,000. 80% of that was student loans. For every $1 I had borrowed, I had paid two back according to the terms. To a lender, this did not matter. Only the outstanding debts existed in their eyes. This is my primary issue with our credit system. It rewards slightly, but damages massively. One can ruin their credit in a month, yet it takes years to repair it, even if they were to pay off all outstanding debts at one time. That's not even mentioning the effects of assuming the worst of every new borrower instead of practicing what we preach when we tell ourselves to give people the benefit of the doubt. Credit should start as a positive that gets decreased, not already in the red that must be bought to black. The situation is true if one has the means to begin their credit life due to affluent family members as co-signers or depositors. It is an inherently biased system which gives those with existing financial security a boost at the expense of those not lucky enough to be born into fortune. Due to the ever-consuming nature of capitalism, the lender must increase their profit margins without driving away the well-off. To offer a 0% interest rate to a rich person, the financier must make up those funds by charging the poor even more. Since our credit system is built upon the foundations of capitalism, this makes it more difficult for those without to ever have any. Higher interest rates require higher payments, which in turn deplete any efforts at savings. These higher rates also mean the basic necessities such as housing and transportation cost more. Rent is a perfect example. Oftentimes those with good credit have lower rents, lower fees, and lower deposits due to their so-called credit worthiness. Those with poor credit often pay extra as assurance that they will not default on their future rent. But let us speak of student loans once more. While we tell young ones with no previous financial experience that they cannot buy a used car or obtain a store card on credit, we allow them to go into debt multiple times over those paltry amounts for student loans. They cannot buy a $50,000 house to live in, but they can easily get upwards of twice that to go to school, which is not dischargeable. The mortgage debt would be discharged in bankruptcy, Yet the educational loans will never be discharged, and they shall have that burden upon their backs the duration of their life. And it is a burden. As the interest rates continue to go up and you pay very little directly toward your principal, 
on average, one can expect to be paying student loans until they retire. And then, if they're lucky, they may exit the trap. But as long as the money keeps rolling into, as long as the money keeps rolling in, the financiers and moneylenders, we cast a blind eye to the damaging effects of this scheme. We do so with the errant hope that one day we shall be in this class without even knowing the very circumstances of our lives forbids it. Don't borrow money if you can't afford to pay it back is a good maxim among friends and is a phrase often tossed about by the proponents of laissez-faire economics. To this I say, we have no choice. To work, you must have a vehicle in our ever-expanding job markets. Yes, one could purchase an old used car, and when it breaks down, they have no other options. If they dare invest in a reliable vehicle to assure their ability to generate income, they are hit with exorbitant interest fees. If they are approved for a loan at all. You must have a roof over your head. We are dictated by the circumstances of our system. We are steeped in it. We are steeped within it. And I give that system, capitalism, no credit. We're going to take a break, and then we're going to talk about some other stuff. So... Hey, capitalism sucks, but Revolution Records, Kansas City's old school record and bookstore, is part of my community. When I'm in Kansas City and need a book or a copy of a local band's album, I go to Revolution Records. Revolution has a great selection of posters, books, records, tapes, and zines. Plus, they repair music and sound gear. That's pretty dope. Most importantly, Revolution Records is part of the community beyond being a small business. The staff does a great job maintaining an inclusive, accepting, and respectful atmosphere, and they also are active in making Kansas City a better place. Community fundraisers, workshops, events, and meetings all have taken place at Revolution Records, and that's just the stuff I was involved in. So the next time you need a new record to spin or your speaker breaks, go check out Revolution Records, located 1830 Locust Street, Kansas City, Missouri, or at revolutionrecordskc.com. So yeah, that I wrote that speech after having that conversation with the lady from the credit union. When I made all these points in a lot less fun, prepared manner, uh, it didn't stop everybody but one apprentice from applauding me when I pointed this all out. That included the instructors and even the lady from the credit union, after I had said my piece, basically was like, he's right. He's right about all of it. That's why I'm here to help. And... I didn't want to pursue because she seemed like a very nice woman, but like how much help is it when you're telling people who at least have the economic potential to make the money to take care of their credit? Like it's not that helpful because it all starts with the income, you know? If you make enough money to pay your bills, you don't utilize credit as much and like I said, you're not paying as much for basic necessities. It's a trap. Very much so. It's it's quicksand. You know, you have to walk across that what you think's a puddle. You take one step, and now you're starting to sink. So you're like, oh, well, I'll just, you know, try to pull myself out. But in the process, you go deeper. And that's the way that it has been planned from the system in this country. Credit has always been a joke in this country. It's always just been used as a means to 
again, keep the economic poor in their place. Which really disturbs me because we as a country like to talk about upward mobility and how we're the land of the free and what was it from an, an American tale, there are no cats in America and the streets are paved with cheese. Like, that's the narrative we tell ourselves, And like so many other narratives of American history, it's a goddamn lie from the get-go. You... You, you don't make money in this country unless you have the either the financial means to start a business, whether that's Elon Musk getting his startup capital from the money stolen from South Africa's diamond mines because, you know, his parents owned a diamond mine in apartheid South Africa, or if it's Bill Gates getting money to start up windows in his garage same thing like all the people that we say started their businesses in their garage did so because they had upper middle class or straight up wealthy parents who basically gave them all the money they needed to get through the lean times of starting a business so that's my big issue whenever people are like oh just start a business all right cool you know most small businesses don't make a profit for the first three years so unless you have the safety cushion of an affluent family to fall back on you're really rolling the dice, and most small businesses fail. So, like, that always pissed me off, especially since we try to idolize these people as, like, the epitome of American ingenuity and stick to or whatever, and it's all bullshit. Like, if I'd had a million dollars handed to me at 23, I would probably be doing something a lot different with my life. But what will be will be, right? So... Let's talk a little bit about a little bit more about Joe Biden, right? So Biden ran against Trump saying at first that he was all about canceling student loan debts, right? Well, then he got elected. Actually, I can't remember the timing exactly right whether or not he said this before he got elected or after, but basically canceling student loans went to like, oh, we'll forgive like $50,000 or something, and then it was $10,000, and then he got elected, and it was like, eh, we're not going to cancel student loans, right? Like, theoretic, or I've heard that he canceled student loans for a very, very, very small subset of the population who had to jump through 8 million hoops and meet 8 million qualifications before they were even considered. And I commend him on that. But what about the rest of us? You know, what about the, you know, the the people of color who disproportionately don't have the wealth of white people because of generational wealth and stuff, where you could literally cancel these student loans and lift a whole bunch of people out of poverty and stuff? It just makes no sense unless you look at it from the view that I do. That again, two wings, same bird. There is not a political party in this country that is looking out for us, for the working people, for the proletariat. No. They're two wings of the same bird. They both want to protect the same corporate donors, and that's one of the many reasons this country is completely fucked, especially since so many people, left and right, have decided to align the fate of the country with a party instead of with their fellow countrymen. And when you do that, it's real easy to divide us and distract us and keep us from doing anything of value, you know. Good example of that off the cuff. I'm recording this on January 7th, so yesterday was the one-year anniversary of the attempted insurrection, which, of course, Democrats made a big deal out of, which 
probably should be made a big deal out of. Personally, my biggest deal is having been shot at with tear gas and beanbags and all that. I'm more pissed that, you know, the right-wing protesters didn't have to deal with that. But that's beside the point. Instead of talking about the increase in COVID cases or people dying or hospital beds running out, all that, the Democrats decided to spend yesterday talking about the insurrection and singing a song from Hamilton. By the way, Hamilton was a douchebag too, and I can't believe y'all are so into this this musical, but I digress. So instead of doing anything that matters that would actually help people, they decided to distract and talk about the 6th. Now they're talking about it, but you know, only like couple hundred people have actually been arrested and none of the people who actually instigated it have been because again two wings same bird so despite all the problems outlined with our entire system of credit both democrats and republicans are vested in keeping it that way that's one of the many reasons we don't have universal health care or universal education Okay? The entire finance industry is backed by the debt incurred from medical bills and higher education, among other debts. This is exactly why the econ- uh, economy collapsed in 2008. When the subprime mortgages tanked, the whole system went with it. And remember, subprime mortgages all right, was bankers deliberately taking advantage of poor people, selling them mortgages they knew they would not be able to pay back. And when it all went to shit, we bailed out. Not the people who had their money stolen by the banks and the financiers, but the banks and the financiers because they were too big to fail, remember? We bailed out the banks, workers got pay cuts, layoffs, benefit reductions, austerity, but hey, we, we bailed out the banks. That's the important thing. I mean, this, this is not a new problem, folks, and the way we're heading with the housing bubble and the uh, long-term effects of the pandemic is we're going to be right back there. So what can we as a community do about it? This is one of those that I I really don't have many ideas, you know? Like, it's such a corrupt, fucked up system that, I mean, what can we do, you know? So in some future episode, I hope to have someone who's more knowledgeable on to help me figure it out. Uh, maybe somebody who works with low-income people in this area. So if there's anybody out there who's like a credit advisor to low-income people hearing this yo get all up in my dms and let's schedule something so but just spitballing here maybe it's buying the debt of your community members very via community debt relief organization maybe it's forming a bankruptcy triage organization to help folks figure out if bankruptcy would help them and how to go about it maybe it's nonprofit debt consolidation organizations Maybe it's co-signing a card for someone and then destroying the card. (sighs) I don't know. I do think a big part of it is when people show up for evictions, we all go to the homies' houses with guns and stand outside until they leave. It worked in the 30s. It'll work today. We just got to get enough of us. Now, I do know there has to be a way to make it work, okay? Credit, whether social or monetary, has always been around. And David Graeber thinks credit predated barter and money economical systems. So it's always going to be here. We've always had some method of exchange that involves some level of credit, even if that was like more of a personal favor thing rather than actual money. Okay, so 
we can change it. We can do something. I don't think it's something that we can really reform much like the police. It's corrupt from the ground up, and we need to burn it down and make something better, something more equitable, something where it benefits all the stakeholders and not just the top 1%, right? So what can be avoided is the obstacles for a large portion of people to obtaining good credit and the privilege of easy credit for the few. Again, I don't got many ideas. And the way the world's heading, I think we're going to probably be going more back to a social credit kind of method rather than, you know, monetary because... Just like after wars where money, inflation, deflation, stagflation, whatever, comes into effect, money doesn't really matter, right? Like if somebody comes to me with a dollar and says that they want a slice of bread, but that dollar is worthless, then why is the dollar even there, you know? But if somebody comes to me wanting a slice of bread and I got bread, oh, God damn it, you can, you can bet I'm going to give them some bread because they can do something for me. That's social credit. And that's, I think, the lower class, that's what we already have, right? We help each other, and we don't really keep track because it's assumed it's going to come back. It will all come back in the wash. We talked a little bit about that in the mutual aid episode. So credit itself is not going to go away. But the corrupt form of credit that we have in this country can and should go away whenever we get this revolution thing actually going. So... And that's what I got for the day. Do-do-do. So, yeah, you're listening to Red Leg Revolution. You can find us on social media at Red Leg Revolution, except for Twitter, which is Red Leg Pod, everything else, Red Leg Revolution, one word, Facebook, YouTube. I think we got an Instagram, although I never check it. You know, all that good stuff. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts and... You know, like, share, subscribe. If y'all got things to to say or topics you want me to talk about or, you know, people you want me to talk to, definitely hop up in the DMs. Uh, If you know me in person, feel free to hit me up, uh, my personal account. If not, hit me up at the socials and let's get a dialogue going. Because, after all, our only hope is each other. President Cole.